Today we are beginning a, a new brief sermon series from the book of Psalms. Uh, and in this series we're going to be looking at some of the different types of psalms that you find in the Psalter. Psalms of disorientation or lament, psalms of orientation where life seems to be as it should be, and then also a psalm of mission. We offer this each Sunday to enrich you here and now, but also to equip you to approach and use the psalms well and wisely in your own devotional life and especially in your prayers. So this is the first of the three-part series that will unfold over the next few weeks. Please pray with me. Come, Holy Spirit, these words inspire. Fill them with your celestial fire. For if you are with us, then nothing else matters. And if you are not with us, then nothing else matters. Help us not just to entertain in our minds the words of Psalm 88, but rather to be formed and deepened and strengthened by them. May this be a blessing to us and to those who depend upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For a while, it seemed that the world was Horatio Spafford's oyster. That's the dapper fellow behind me on the screen. He had an impressive education. He was a lawyer at the bar in 19th century Illinois. By his mid-30s, he was a prominent solicitor, in fact, a senior partner at a very reputable Chicago law firm. He was a man of influence, and he was a man who had influential friends. One of them was Dwight Moody, the renowned evangelist in the United States at that time and the founder of the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. In 1870, however, an onslaught of tragedies entered Spafford's life. His only son, who was four years old at that time, died of scarlet fever. He would have another son, born six years later, who would also die at age four of scarlet fever. The next year, 1871, witnessed the great Chicago fire. Spafford's sizable real estate holdings, the bulk of his wealth, was reduced to ashes. In 1873, in the midst of all of this strife and disappointment, he decided to take his family on a vacation. Why not go to Europe? His friend Dwight Moody was going to be in England on a preaching tour. They could join up with him and hear some of the, uh, the sermons. At the last minute, Spafford himself was delayed. He had to stay in, in Chicago to tend to some business, but he went ahead and put his wife, Anna, and their four young daughters on a ship for the United Kingdom. It was called the Ville de Havre. That ship was struck by another ship in the Mid-Atlantic at 2 a.m. on November 22nd of that year. The captain, it seems, underestimated the damage vastly. The ship was done for, and the lifeboats and jackets couldn't be deployed very easily because a recent paint job had left them glued to the boat. Within 12 minutes, the ship sank. Anna survived. She was found unconscious floating on an object. All four of his daughters drowned. Spafford was a bit like Job. The words of Psalm 88 could have been his, and they were in a sense. But so were some other words. When Spafford went to retrieve his wife from England a few weeks later, he passed over the very spot where his four daughters drowned. And in that moment, he penned some verses, which we now know as the song, It Is Well With My Soul. We will be singing that after this sermon. 
Keep this story in mind as we go forward this morning. It reminds us that in this life, the words of Psalm 88 will probably be our words at some point. But this story also reminds us that the other words of Spafford, the words of it is well with my soul, can also be our words. So let's think about this together as we come to one of the bleakest and gravest psalms in the Bible. The psalm that we're looking at, Psalm 88, which I invite you to open in your Bibles as we work through it now, has been called an embarrassment to conventional Christian faith. It has no room for naive optimism. It lacks the words of consolation and comfort that are found in so many other psalms, especially the ones that we prefer to read on Sunday morning at church or in our quiet time, those verses that we like to include in text or emails to other people. We don't do that very often with verses from Psalm 88. You don't text verse 14 to your friends. Why would you cast away my soul, Lord? Why do you hide your face from me? I sent a few verses from Lament Psalms out to friends this week just to see what reaction I got. (laughs) Silence. (laughs) And Psalm 88 is indeed a lament psalm. That means it deals with subjects and events that are a source of acute disappointment, confusion, agony, and disorientation. It's a psalm that boldly plunges into the gloom and grief and bewilderment that are part of human experience. Lament psalms can be pretty unsettling to us. They bring things to the front of our minds that we'd sometimes rather keep at bay or avoid or even deny. But we need these types of psalms. Christian life needs the perspective of Psalm 88. And so it's a good thing that God has included this voice and others like it in Holy Scripture. It brings a timely and needed exhortation to his church. This will become quite clear in the sermon ahead. So let's work together in the next little while to explore this psalm. And as we do so, I want to talk to you about three things. We'll give you a good three-point sermon today. The scenario of this psalm, the author of this psalm, and the indispensable benefit of this psalm for contemporary Christian witness. The scenario. The groans of Psalm 88 bring us face to face with the trials and moments of bitter dismay that are part and parcel of human experience. These grim words don't just invite our understanding, but also our empathy. They want us to relate to them. We don't know exactly what was going on in the life of the psalmist who first wrote these words. Perhaps a terrible illness like leprosy. That's what some scholars uh, conjecture. Something awful. A source of physical, emotional, spiritual, and relational misery and destitution. And as a result of this affliction, which we see in verse 8 and 18, the psalmist feels utterly abandoned by his friends. The word for friends here doesn't just mean acquaintances or fair-weather friends. It actually means close friends. He feels abandoned by those types of friends. And beyond this, as we learn from verse 6 and 14, he also feels forgotten by God. When it rains, it pours. The wailing of our psalmist is shrill. The Hebrew term in verse 1 for crying literally means a ringing cry of sorrow, a cry that comes from being satiated, as verse 3 tells us, 
but not in the normal, pleasant sense of being satiated. Our psalmist is filled with trouble and disappointment and gloom. His agony feels like death. There's a little ironic wordplay in the Hebrew of verse 5. It says the psalmist has been freed or liberated from anything good in life. Life has become a living hell. In the midst of all of this, the question that we also ask in our suffering surfaces, why? Why is this happening? In the psalmist's speculation about this, there's no masking, there's no religious sentimentality or politeness. God gets the blame. Seven times in this psalm, God is credited with either causing or allowing the misery to consume the psalmist. It is God, as verse 18 tells us, that has caused his friends to abandon him. I think the psalmist is probably interpreting his circumstances in light of God's great promises to Israel, which are laid out earlier in the Old Testament, promises to tend to their well-being, their prosperity, their thriving. All of this has evaporated, seemingly. And the psalmist begs God to know why. Why have you let this happen? Why do you afflict me? Sounds like Job. This is the self-interpretation of the psalmist and his experience. We don't know if these feelings are valid. We don't know what was actually going on in his life. We're not told, but we know how he feels. We encounter the full force of raw, confused, excruciating emotion, the type which consumes all of us at certain moments. In response to this interpretation of his suffering, the psalmist makes a pretty familiar appeal to God. He reminds God that his death, his undoing, is not ultimately in God's best interest. Verses 10 and 11. Can a living person praise God? No way, Jose. Those in Sheol, verse 3, do not praise God, nor do those in Abaddon, verse 11. Sheol and Abaddon are Hebrew terms for uh, the underworld, a sort of shadowy existence where people can't praise God or celebrate his good works. Like many of us in these moments, our psalmist seeks to bargain with God in order to regain his equilibrium, his sense of orientation. He outlines why God should take pity on him. And in a nutshell, it's in God's best interest to do that. The agony that we see in this psalm is comparatively more intense than what we find in most of the other lament psalms. Psalm 88 doesn't have the customary words of praise and trust in God that are sprinkled throughout the other psalms of distress in the, in the Old Testament. Most other psalms of disorientation have some explicit expression of trust in God. They contain some reference or expectation to be rescued and saved. In fact, this is so typical in lament psalms that its absence in Psalm 88 has led a lot of scholars to speculate that there must have been some note of happy ending at the end that was lost along the way. It got cut off. Wishful thinking. No place for that in this psalm. There's nothing here but pleading and lament and pleading and lament over and over and over again. Even when the psalm ends, we can imagine these cries continuing out into the abyss ad infinitum. 
There's no neat resolution. There's no final positive declaration. There's no light in the darkness. Remember verse 18. This is a personal conversation with God that is riddled with torment and dismay and despair. It's brutally honest about the feelings of the psalmist. Now for certain forms of Christian piety, the thought of this type of blunt, raw discourse with God is scandalous. It seems unfaithful. It makes us blush. We say, keep that stuff outside the church. We don't talk that way in here. But here's the thing. This psalm is for us. Its perspective, its language, its attitude are instructive for God's people. Here and now, you and me, today. Psalm 88, like all lament psalms, is given to shape our vision of Christian life, normative Christian life, to inform our expectations and ideas about what it means to be in a real relationship with God in this world, with all of its struggles and losses and travesties. Psalm 88 is given to shape our understanding of how we can talk to God, to deter us from treating God like a porcelain statuette that will break or shatter if anything unseemly or crude comes at it. Let me tell you why we don't have this psalm. It's not just so that we can look into someone else's very, very bad day or awful month or horrible year. Something much more important is at stake here. Here's the thing. If you read through the whole book of Psalms, you'll find that about a third of them, that's a big percentage, are filled with resounding cries for help to God. The frequency and desperation of these cries is staggering. The frank admissions of feelings of acute frustration and bewilderment is striking. Yet the use of these psalms in the life of the church is in no way proportional to their appearance in Scripture. There are actually studies to verify this. This is a shame and a sham. It fails to take into account the fractured nature of our existence. What do I mean by that? Psalm 88 gives us permission to speak freely. Out of our places of darkness and misery and confusion and disorientation, to be honest before God about our worries, our dismay, the alarm that we feel when we're in those places and in those moments. And this permission, which I think is really a summons to the church, stands in stark opposition to certain currents in our culture and even currents in the church Currents that would deny the reality of life in this world. A world where our existence is fractured because of the corruption of sin. And so we experience sickness and poverty and war, greed, exploitation, relational dysfunction and breakdown, abuse, infidelity, and finally death. We all languish in these things. Let me explain further. In our society, in our part of the world, perhaps today less than in more optimistic decades of the past, the progress myth is still quite powerful. The progress myth. We've been conditioned to think that things are getting better. This is the default trajectory of humanity. We're evolving to higher and grander and better things. 
And as this happens, we will increasingly have the capacity to overcome our fractured existence. We and our own resources will be able to overcome the corruption of sin. We can just get the right education, the right people in leadership, the right systems, the right laws, the right economy, the right psychological tune-ups, and we can overcome all those things that plague our existence, those things that push us into a place like Psalm 88. This is the progress myth. It's an ancient delusion and a perennial fantasy. It gets disseminated in all sorts of ways in our society. When I was reflecting on this psalm and on the progress myth, the old song came to my mind with the words, eliminate the positive, excuse me, eliminate the negative, accentuate the positive, and don't mess with Mr. In-Between. That might be a very, very old song. You probably never heard it. We honor this type of optimism, even when it leads us to forms of denial. Think about euphemisms. They enable us in small but significant ways to keep the indicators of our fractured existence at bay. We don't speak about murder, we speak about collateral damage. Instead of talking about getting old or aging, we talk about being senior or mature or in one's golden years. We don't talk about war, instead we talk about assertive disarmament. We don't talk about bombing villages, we talk about air campaigns. Instead of saying that we've been made redundant or fired, we talk about early retirement. And these days, instead of saying we've been through a divorce, we talk about conscious decoupling. In subtle ways, all of this constitutes a false sense of reality, and it nurtures a naive optimism and a foolish positivism that has no place for the piercing neediness and destitution of Psalm 88. And so like a slap in the face, Psalm 88 confronts the forms of denial that permeate our existence in lots of little ways. It rails against the progress myth and its sometimes fraudulent and naive optimism. It rebukes the temptation to cheap and false closure as a coping mechanism. Psalm 88 invites us to acknowledge the harsh realities of human existence and to abandon forms of religiosity or spirituality that don't tolerate negativity or feelings of anger at God or the absence of felt joy or the evaporation of spiritual stability, the bewilderment of suffering. Knowing God and being part of his people is not about learning to play that part. It's not about maintaining the facade of glee. It's not about becoming someone who can stand at the foot of a genocide and say, isn't God good? That's not what a real relationship with God looks like. That's a false religiosity. Psalm 88 reminds us that in this world, there's space in our lives and our conversations with God for raw and confused emotion emotion that genuinely corresponds to the state of the world as a place that is still in some way subject to the corruption of sin and a fractured existence. As I was reflecting on this point, this profound point from Psalm 88, a scene from the movie Shadowlands came to my mind. Some of you may be familiar with this. It was a play and then a TV show and then a movie starring Anthony Hopkins. It's the story of C.S. Lewis at the end of his life. 
He married much later in life and was married for a short time to a woman called Joy Davidman. And maybe two or three years after the marriage, she was consumed by terminal cancer and died. And uh, it was quite overwhelming and unbearable for him. There's a scene, I think, from this film that epitomizes and captures the perspective of Psalm 88. I want to read you a brief section of the transcript. I'm not as good as Anthony Hopkins, so bear with me. Joy has passed away, and C.S. Lewis, who is also called Jack, comes into the dining room of his college in Oxford. In he walks. He says, I wasn't going to come, but I decided I would anyway. His friend says, Jack, life must go on. I know it must. I, I don't know if it must, but it does. Is there anything I can do for you, Jack, says another friend. Just don't tell me it's all for the best, that's all. The friend says, only God knows why these things happen, Jack. God knows, but does he care? Of course, Jack, we see so little. We're not the creator. No, no, we're not. We're rats in the cosmic laboratory. I have no doubt that the experiment is for our good, but it still makes God the vivisectionist. Jack, no! It won't do. It's a bloody, awful mess, and that's all there is to it. It's a jarring scene. Do you ever talk to God like this? Have you ever? If you haven't, perhaps you should examine your ideas about spirituality. Do you think that your emotions are too much for God? That he can't handle it? Are you trying to convince yourself that everything is fine and dandy when you know it's not? Let me give you a bit of quick application right here and now from this point. I was reading in psychology today earlier this week, and they say that the need and benefit of venting corresponds to our composition as humans. When we accept this, the better question becomes not whether or not we should vent, but rather whether we're suppressing the need to vent and who are we venting to. Perhaps our failure to be honest with God in our prayers to vent leads us to bite off the heads of those around us. Our pent-up frustration and anger and sorrow spews on them. Why not lay this before God? He can handle it better than most people. Do yourself a service and a service to those around you. Remember that with God you have permission to speak freely. Now, while I expect this psalm will challenge some of you to be more candid and more honest in your conversations with God, I also expect that some of you will probably be fully on board with its lesson about honesty. You're nodding in approval. You like honesty. You like frankness, even when it's unpleasant. You don't mind. This is good, but it can also be a problem. When we're tempted to be honest and raw about the fractured nature of our existence, and then stop there. We vent, and then we walk away from God. And then we have honesty and frankness for its own sake. Now, while this attitude does acknowledge the fragmentation of the world, it doesn't acknowledge the redemption of the world. And as Christians, we have to take both of these into account. We live in both a fractured world and a world that is being redeemed. Our life as Christians is a pilgrim life. It's a life in between. A life lived on the one hand in a world beset by the corrupting influence of sin. 
but on the other hand, a life lived under the promise of redemption, a life with hope. Now here's the catch. If you take Psalm 88 to heart, if you take its perspective into account, and you're only attentive to the harsh realities of human experience, then you're going to become a cynic, a bitter person, a jaded person. You'll think you've really come to terms with the world, but it's okay, therefore, to be cynical. But that would be a mistake, because cynicism is a lie that masks itself as an insight. Now, you could give Psalm 88 a cursory read and draw the conclusion that there's no hope in it, no sense of God's redemptive work to be found here, that it's just a cynic's psalm, a psalm that tells us to forsake hope, a psalm that condones despair or entry into a jaded form of life. If this happens, you'll never be able to write a song like Horatio Spafford, who says in that famous song, which we'll sing in a few minutes, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And if this happens, you'll never taste the visionary hope that animated the life and ministry of Martin Luther King, Jr., a man who, despite being in the midst of tremendous trials and setbacks, who experienced intense anger and dismay and even the abandonment by his friends in a way that few of us will, but in spite of all that could still see glimmers of hope of God's redemptive work in the world. Just consider his last speech, the one he made before he was assassinated the night before he was assassinated, where he talked about seeing his people get to the promised land. Equality. Where he acknowledged that he might not get there with them, but he acknowledged also that they would get there. Why? Not because he believed the progress myth, but in his own words, because he has seen the coming of the glory of the Lord. You don't want to lose sight of the redemptive impulse at work in the world. To read and receive Psalm 88 as an invitation to hopelessness is a misstep, and it's not what God wants for you. How do we avoid this misstep? How do we let Psalm 88 challenge us to be more honest about our fractured existence while not letting that frankness and honesty morph into cynicism and hopelessness? Here's how. Remember the author. I don't mean the person who originally penned these words of agony and distress. I mean the person who used that person to bring these words to us. I mean the man who truly spoke these words. The man for whom the sense of being separated from God was not just a perception, but a reality. Not just emotional confusion, objective experience, even if but for a moment, an eternal moment. Psalm 88, some of you may know, is a Good Friday psalm. That's when it's traditionally read in the churches. On the night that Jesus was betrayed and delivered up for crucifixion, he uttered an agonizing prayer to God. Matthew 26 tells us about it. It doesn't say much about this prayer, but it says enough. Jesus was deeply disturbed. His soul was sorrowful unto death. His heart was full of troubles. His companions had abandoned him. The one person who always praised God was made silent. Jesus asked God to take away this misery 
and this anguish that was crushing him, but God didn't. And so Jesus was thrown into the pit. He was overwhelmed with sorrows. He was made helpless. He was slain, becoming like those who are among the dead. Psalm 88. He was cut off from God. He descended into the regions of the dark and the deep. Darkness truly became his only companion. But he did this so that that type of darkness would never have to be our only companion, at least in an ultimate, permanent, and lasting sense. He did this so that the troubles of our lives and the burdens of our souls will not have the last word, so that our future will not be one of permanent darkness, but rather of permanent light, so that the pits and agonies that we all experience in this life will prove at the end of the day to be just moments of dismay and destitution that eventually give way to an existence where every tear will be wiped away, where there will be no more mourning and crying, where death will be no more. The old has passed away and the new has come. Friends, this is the arresting declaration of the New Testament. It's the source of all of its song and celebration that one man's entry into the reality of Psalm 88 means that for the rest of us, those circumstances, in an ultimate sense, are relativized. This is the hope, the secret to hope for life in between, for those on a pilgrim life such as ours. Life in a fractured world, but a world where redemption is promised and even breaking in in some way. This, of course, is not to say that to live in Christ means that your life will no longer be marred by sin or fracturedness. You will still get sick. Some of you may still lose children. You will still be subject to the injustices of life in this world, and you will probably inflict some as well, hopefully inadvertently. But in all of this, we know that our fragmentation will be eventually displaced by redemption. And that's why we can pray like Psalm 88 without falling into ultimate despair. This is the declaration of Jesus Christ, the truer author of Psalm 88, the one who experienced the full and ultimate weight of its words so that you and I never will. Do you know this? Are you fortifying this in your life? Are you asking the Holy Spirit to press it into your bones? This is what guards us from cynicism from seeking quick resolution amidst the pain of life, from using denial as a coping mechanism, from being buried permanently in a sense of separation from God, which objectively speaking, because of Jesus Christ, is never actually permanent and real. Now, when you grasp this in your heart, some pretty important and marvelous things begin to happen. When you're really honest and conversant, with the perspective of Psalm 88, but also God's redemptive work in the world, you benefit, but so do others, and so does the witness of the church. This is what I want to ponder briefly in closing. How do the lessons that we've drawn out of Psalm 88 play an indispensable role in Christian witness here and now, today, in Vancouver? This past week, I've been reading about the experience of human suffering how we interpret it, how we process it, how we face it, or not. At the foundation of suffering is death, the stark reality that's going to confront each and every one of us. Sometimes we don't like the thought of this confrontation. 
especially in our culture and also in the church here. Let me tell you what I mean. One of the articles I read, which moved me deeply, was about the private worlds of dying children, children who are hospitalized with terminal illness. In the presence of adults, whether it's the doctor, the parent, or another guest, these children often refrain from any discussion of their grim prognosis. But when they're with other children in the bathroom of the hospital, with other children who are terminally ill, they speak very frankly about their decline. Why? They have been conditioned to know that discussion of such unpleasant and painful things is not appropriate, at least with adults. They've learned to live under pretense, to think positively, to eliminate the negative, to avoid any reference to death, to ignore the elephant in the room. But ignoring and pretending is really all they're doing because they know that they're dying. They make it known in all sorts of subtle ways. When their bodies get closer to death, they start talking about dying with their toys. Sometimes they even place their toys in pretend graves. They draw pictures of storms and fires and disasters. They love reading Charlotte's Web, a beautiful children's novel. It's the most popular book among terminally ill children. And the most popular chapter of that book is the one where the spider Charlotte dies. It captures their attention. But these same children don't feel that they can speak freely at all with the adults that surround them. They've learned there that death is a taboo subject. They would never dare to utter the words of Psalm 88. Their adult entourage has implicitly taught them to shy away from that type of frankness, that type of raw emotion, that type of coming to terms with the harshness of human reality. This is a devastating problem, and it goes well beyond the palliative care wards of our hospitals. It's a general epidemic in society and in our churches, and it's ruining us for our witness. Several notable sociologists, Christian Smith, David Kenneman, and Kendra Casey Dean, have been mapping the faith lives of emerging adults for the last 10 or 15 years. These are guys and girls between the age of 18 and 29. These days, there are a lot of emerging adults leaving the church. There's a mass exodus, but it's not towards God, it's away from him. What do these people say about their Christian faith? This is what they say. Being a Christian feels like reading from a script. It feels formulaic. The church is not safe to be open about doubts. The church is a place that gives slick, simplistic, and half-baked answers the church does not allow me to admit that sometimes my faith doesn't make sense. Sometimes God doesn't seem to be doing the things that he said he would. The very pleas of Psalm 88. The church is nice, but it's shallow, it's boring, it's filled with platitudes. It's not honest about the gravity of following Christ. It's not always sober in acknowledging the difficulties of trusting God in this world. That's what they say. Some of these charges may need to be adjusted, they may be overstated, but there is truth in them. In many cases, the church, the community of God, has become a pathetic version of itself. 
and it offers a vision of Christian life that is thin and fake and unsatisfying, and ultimately, as we now see, very conducive to high attrition rates. Almost Christian. We lost them. The demanding and sometimes confusing and bewildering call to follow Jesus in a fractured world has been lost, and with it, a lot of people in the younger generation. The freedom to acknowledge the harshness of this world with raw emotion and frankness has been displaced by a religious culture of nice and pleasant, and that is not why Jesus laid down his life for the world. I'm sorry if you've ever gotten that impression. This is not the nature of life for God's people. It's not what we see in Jesus Christ. This is an imposter form of Christianity. It's a mode of Christian life and intimacy and conversation with God that is shattered by the realism of Psalm 88. And it needs to be because it's killing the church our young people are exposing theological malpractice. And so in closing, we see that the spirituality, the way of relating to God and praying and speaking to God that is displayed in the fullness of Psalm 88 has everything to do with witness. It forms us into a people who understand what our pilgrim existence is like, what it involves people who are candid and sober and honest about the harsh experience of life in this world, but people who trust and hope in God's redeeming work. If the absence of this is driving young people out of the church, perhaps its restoration will draw them back. The groans of Psalm 88 do not represent the fullness of Christian life, but it's an important part. And when it is suppressed or sugar-coated, there are consequences. Our young people are telling us this. They have good noses for limp and contrived Christianity. Maybe God is telling us something through them. The same thing that Psalm 88 has long been telling to the church.